scriptures accurately and in truth. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Matt. You may be seated. Our kids can be dismissed to uh, programming down the hall for them. And uh, we are glad that you are here at uh, Community Christian Church at the 9 o'clock service. Thank you for coming and worshiping with us this morning. Research will affirm kind of what we already know, and it is this. How important this thing called hope is to us. If you are an employee and you are a hopeful employee, you will miss about three days of work a year. If you are an employee, on the other hand, without a lot of hope, you will miss more than three times that many days over the course of a year. Hopeful salespeople will reach quotas more often. Hopeful managers and teams will meet more of their goals more often. Hopeful people, if you're a hopeful person, When pain comes into your life, you will tolerate that pain better. Hope makes life worth living. People without hope in their life have mortality rates that are actually two times the rate of people who are filled with hope. Hope impacts the rate at which you age. It affects your health. It affects your productivity. Help helps you handle stress. It helps you handle change. It helps you handle adversity. Hope does not just motivate people to positive action. Hope actually has healing powder or power. There was <laughs> there was a study done that uh, followed 122 men after they suffered their first heart attack, and they were all evaluated as to the degree of their hopefulness or their pessimism. And of the 25 most pessimistic men, 21 of those guys had died within in eight years of their original heart attack. On the other hand, 25 of the most optimistic of those men, only six had died. Now, if you do the math on that, it means that the loss of hope increases your odds of death more than 300% if you've had a heart attack. It turns out that hope predicts death more accurately than any medical risk factor, including blood pressure, including the amount of damage to the heart, including your cholesterol level. It means that you can have a lot of things going against you health-wise, but you can still live a very long life if you have hope. And that leads us to this line that I love. It's better to eat Twinkies in hope than to eat broccoli in despair. That is beautiful. 
That's how important hope is, right? Our life today, even our heart health, is shaped by our hope for tomorrow. And so we're, uh, for a few weeks here, we're talking about hope. And we've uh, entitled this series, Shaped by Hope. The last two weeks, we've looked at hope for the world. That's the way we started because Jesus has stepped up for us and done something for everyone who will come to him. And that gives hope to the world. Last week, we talked about hope for my life because I have a living hope in a person named Jesus. And that means I have the hope of living no matter what life throws at me. And today, we're going to talk just for a few minutes about hope for our community. The Christian hope just can build, it, it can shape the kind of community that everyone wants to be a part of. Now, every week when you come and, and whoever's doing the announcements for the day and leading into, into communion for the day, we, we always try to say this little play on words that, that we hope that you're catching on to as well. We say that we are a community of people loved by Jesus who want to see Jesus loved by our community, right? And so today, as we talk about community, what I want you to think in your head is both of those entities, both our community inside these walls, Community Christian Church, but also our community outside these walls, the community of Fort Scott. And in both of those realms, inside these walls and outside them, the, the question is, how can the Christian hopes build a community that everybody wants to be a part of and to explore this? a little bit. We're not looking at the most famous passage, are we? And yet, it is critical. It's in Acts chapter 8, and it's a little transition passage. And to this point in the book of Acts, uh, the church has been contained in the city of Jerusalem. Starting in, in chapter 7, there's a guy named Stephen. And Stephen comes along, and he's preaching about Jesus, and the religious leaders of Jerusalem kind of view his preaching as a threat to their religious system, to Judaism. And so the end of this whole drama with Stephen, they kind of go back and forth, is that Stephen is driven out of the city and he is actually stoned to death by the Jewish leaders. And our text picks up right after that happens. It says a guy named Saul is there approving of Stephen's death. Saul will become an important character in the story of the church in just a few chapters uh, from now, but this is his little introduction to the story. And it's Stephen's execution here that seems to give everybody in Jerusalem that's not a Christian kind of a green light to go after Christians. And so it led to this mass persecution in Jerusalem of people who chose to follow Jesus. Now, I want you to put yourself in those shoes, and I want to ask yourself, what do you do if you're a Christian in Jerusalem, and you learn that the religious establishment is coming for you? This text tells us that guys like Saul were breaking down doors. They were forcing their way into houses. They were dragging off husbands and wives and families and carrying them off to prison. Now, if you see that a couple, three, four, five doors down from you, what do you do if you're a follower of Jesus? And you see somebody barging into your neighbor's house and dragging them off. I think you run, right? You run away. You find somewhere to go that's safe. And that's exactly what happened. I want you to look at verse 1. It says that they were all scattered, all the Christians, 
throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. This persecution that was happening in Jerusalem forced believers out of the city and into the world. And then also look at verse 4. It says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. These are, are scattered and displaced people, and yet they do not lose what is core to their being. They find themselves in new places all over uh, the countryside, but they've held on to the story of Jesus, and they begin to tell that story to everyone they come across in those new places. The word here is preaching. They, they start preaching the word, and the word is not really preaching, it's evangelizing. It means to share some sort of good news. That's what the word is about. And here the good news announcement that is being made is the story of Jesus. I want you to note this as well. Let's go back to verse 1. And I want you to note who was left behind in Jerusalem versus who was forced out of Jerusalem. Who's left behind? It's the apostles that are left behind. It's the leaders of the church that are left behind. It's, it's the butcher and the baker and the candlestick maker. That's who gets shoved out into other parts of the world. They get moved on because of the per persecution. Regular people with regular jobs go to new places, and the news of Jesus is still shared when they get there, wherever that there is. Ordinary people taking the opportunity to share the message of Jesus wherever they found themselves. And when they get to that new place, the kingdom still grows. Church still happens. In other words, here's what we learn. They don't need the, the leaders of the church in all of these new places. Now, all of that to say this. What does it tell us? Everyone has a mission. Everyone has a mission. Hope will only come to our community when everyone owns the mission. Persecution forced believers out into the world, and their goal was to try to run away from the persecution, but their goal was never to run away from Jesus. To follow Jesus in these days for these people meant that they now had ownership of the mission of Jesus and his church, and it didn't matter who you were. It didn't matter that you were not an apostle. It didn't matter that Peter or James wasn't your small group leader. It didn't matter that you didn't see Jesus alive for yourself like a lot of those church leaders did. You're just a guy. You're just a gal that has been given hope in Jesus' name by God's grace. And you know now that it is your responsibility and task to now give that hope to others. The church, even from its beginning days, was never intended to be a place where a small group of providers read that, okay? See everybody else's customers. That's not the way the church works. From the beginning, the church is a body where every member of that church, every one of us has a role to play in taking the Jesus story to the world. And these first believers understood that everyone who follows Jesus is that kind of provider. Every person is a teacher. Every person is a member. Every member is a missionary. Everyone is a minister. Everyone is an owner. 
of the mission. Hope will come to our community to the extent that everyone in these walls recognizes and owns for themselves what we are doing here. And so these are ordinary people, but they are expanding the kingdom wherever they they were. And that, that sounds like you and me. That, that's not out of our reach. What does it look like for you and I to own the mission of Jesus in the sphere that Jesus has put us in? Is it to start a Bible study with some coworkers? I don't know. Maybe that's, maybe that's true for you. Is it to just simply ask the people in your life, how can I pray for you? Is it to read Bible stories to kids because you're hanging around kids all day? Is there something that only you can do in the space where God has put you? The answer is yes. There's something. You have a mission. God never called you into his family with also, without also sending you out. And the persecution in Acts chapter 8 is God's way of saying to those first believers, get out, <laughs> get out. You can't just stay in Jerusalem. I want this thing to go all over the world. And so I need you to get out. And when they did, they took the mission with them and God's kingdom grew. There's another detail here. Not only does everyone, um, does everyone have a mission, but everyone has a message. Everyone has a message. All, all of these ordinary people owned the mission, and, and then they began to preach about Jesus. And we've hit on this word evangelize or, or share, or maybe we could put it this way. What they really went out doing was gossip. <laughs> That's really what they were doing. Everyone had this message that they felt compelled to just gossip to everyone they could, and that that story happened to be the message of Jesus. In verse 5, we get to see a guy named Philip. And Philip becomes an example of all of these people who were scattered all over the countryside. And we meet Philip for the very first time in Acts chapter 6. And when we read of him there, we the text says of him that he was a, a, a man of good reputation. It says that he, he let the Holy Spirit guide him in his life. And it says that because of that, he did very wise things. Now, I want you to just take a moment and recognize that's not beyond any one of us. You can have a good reputation. You can let the Holy Spirit guide you in your life so that you do wise things. That's not beyond any of us. And so Philip is just this very ordinary guy who is just deeply committed to God. And I want you to look what he does. Verse 5, as a result of the scattering, Philip says to himself, I'm going to go to the city of Samaria. And so he goes down to the city of Samaria, or it could just be read a city in Samaria. We really don't know, but wherever he went, it was in Samaria. And he says, I'm going to proclaim the Christ. That's what the text says to all of the people there. Now that's informative for us. Nobody, nobody that we read of developed a plan for Philip. There's no strategy, there's no mission strategy that the church came up with for Philip. There, there wasn't a church meeting where everybody got together and they all voted and they said, hey, somebody needs to go to Samaria. Uh, who's going to go? Well, Philip's not here. We should send him. They didn't do that. No, there's none of that. Uh, Philip is not a part of your a bureaucracy where, where people at the top make all of the decisions and draw up all the X's and O's. No, no, no. 
Philip is a part of a movement. And it means when you're a part of a movement, you know the mission. And he owned the mission. That's what a movement is. It's a bunch of people who are owning the same task, the same mission, and they're just going and doing it. And so he just went. He didn't need permission from anybody. Let me just throw this out there. I don't know who needs to hear it. Are you waiting for permission to do that thing that God has, you know, he's calling you to do? Are you waiting for permission? You don't need it. If you think you do, then I'll just help you today. I now give you permission. There it is. You go, go do that thing. Go start that service. Go speak those words in the name of Jesus. Having Jesus as Lord of your life is all the permission that you need. Go. Just go and take the hope of Jesus to whoever needs it in whatever way God has wired you up to do it. Here's how that looks for Philip. And it should probably in a very general way, we're all wired up different, but in a very general way, it should look for us too. And these are the things that we don't need permission for. We just need passion for. Look at how Philip went. He went preaching, first of all. The word that's used is different than the other preaching word. This word is to proclaim. It just means to announce something. Like if, if I had some good news that I wanted to announce to everybody, that's the word. And so Philip went to this city in Samaria and he looked for ways that he could announce to the people the story of Jesus. He went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed. And the, the hint that we get here is that it was very public proclamation. It was very public teaching, and, and it was teaching of what? It was teaching of Christ. The whole point of what we do is Jesus Christ. The goal is to announce to people how Jesus came to rescue us and to save us by grace. And so Philip goes to Samaria, and he preaches. He calls people to Jesus. He calls them to repentance. He calls them to life change through a person who died so that they could live. He went preaching. Here's the second thing he did. He went serving. He went serving. In verses 6 to 7, we, we see a lot of this. Uh, Philip uses his words in Samaria, right? But right alongside that, he uses his, his hands. These people that he helps see the signs that he did. And by the hands of Philip, people are delivered spiritually, and some people are healed, and people are just helped. In other words, people are, are getting help for whatever physical needs that they have. And so the pic picture we get here is that these were probably, when you read it, you know, you, you kind of get this idea that they were miraculous things. But, but it doesn't mean that helping somebody with your hands will be or even needs to be miraculous. There are hundreds of ways that we can give people help for their physical needs that aren't miracles, and yet to the person being helped, they're always pretty miraculous. And in serving others, Peter or Philip is simply repeating in Samaria what he had experienced in Jerusalem. If you go back to Acts chapter 4, there's this little passage in Acts chapter 4 that describes how the church in Jerusalem kind of functions. And we find in Acts chapter 4 in this little passage that they were helping each other. They were 
selling things and then giving the proceeds to each other. They were sharing whatever they had with each other so that to the extent that the text says there was no poor among them. Now, we're not talking about just 12 people. We're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of people that are a part of this early church in Jerusalem, and there was no poor among them because they shared with each other so much. That's an amazing thing. And all of Jerusalem, the whole city, watched them be this way. And so when Philip goes to Samaria, he recreates that same way of living and loving. And I want you to look at the result. It's in verse 6. It says this, all crowds, all the crowds, with one accord, that means that they were unanimous in this action. Every eye was glued on Philip with one accord. They paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they saw the things Philip did, they paid attention to what he said. When people saw God in the actions of Philip, they hung on his every word. People will listen to our words if they see our deeds. When they see this community loving the community and meeting needs and caring about what happens in this town, then, then they will listen to what we have to say. When people see God in what you do, they will listen to God through what you say. Here's the third thing that Philip went and did. He went reconciling. He went preaching, he went serving, and he went reconciling. I want you, have you noticed yet where Philip decides to go? We've mentioned it a few times already. It's this place called Samaria. Now, if you're uh, familiar with uh, the New Testament a little bit, then you know that Samaria is filled with Samaritans. Yeah, well done. Good job. Awesome. There, and if there was anything tr- true of Jewish people in this day, it was that they hated Samaritans. They hated them. Samaritans were those people. Samaritans were not fully Jewish. They were a mixed race. And full-blooded Jews considered them to be half-breeds that did not measure up and certainly should not have a seat at the table of God. And so Jewish people would go out of their way to avoid Samaritan people. And what is Philip? Philip is Jewish, without doubt. He would have been raised with this kind of prejudice and bigotry for all of the people of Samaria. And that is a problem. We, We can't just bypass that. That's a problem that affects every one of us in this room. It doesn't matter what kind of upbringing you bring. Maybe it was the best kind. It doesn't matter whatever culture you were brought up in, whatever group you were a part of, whatever region you grew up in, that climate in one way or another taught you to look down on some other people group. That's what the world instructs us to do, to look out and say, oh, those people. And you've been taught, at least by your surroundings, to say that of some group. Oh, oh, those people. And God wants us to get over that. And so I want you to look at Philip. Philip is more than a prejudiced Jew at this point. 
He is now, because Jesus has come into his life, he is a reconciliating Christian. I don't even know if that's a word, reconciliating. But that's what he is. He's a reconciliating Christian. Philip just goes. A Jewish Christian goes to Samaria and he begins to reach across all of the lines that he's seen drawn in the dirt for his whole lifetime. And he begins to serve and love and care for those people as if they weren't those people at all. Whenever there is racial tension, it is because on one hand, maybe we feel less than some other people. And so we say, man, I I wish I could be that. I wish I could have that. I wish I could do that. I wish I had their position in the world. And when we feel less than, we're jealous. And, And tension is a result. On the other hand, racial tension can also be because we feel like we're more than other people. We look at that other group and we say, I'm glad I'm not like that. I'm way better than that. And we laugh at those people, right? What can change that? Only the gospel. Only the gospel. The gospel tells us that on one hand, we are utterly lost on our own. We are wicked. We are total sinners. And without the grace of God through Jesus coming into our lives, that's the way we would stay. And so when we recognize that we are sinners without hope, that erases any ounce of superiority that we might then have over other people. You are the least of these. That's what the gospel says. So you have no right to look down on other people. But the gospel also says that because of Jesus and what he has done for you, that you are loved without limit by God himself. God loved you so much that he gave up the thing that he held closest to his heart. He gave up his son and he gave up his son for you. Do you get what that does? It erases any possibility of us feeling less than. And so the gospel knocks you down from the pedestal that you've climbed up on and at the very same time it lifts you up from the mud that you've fallen into. And when you are removed from both of those places of prejudice, now you can begin to reach out to other people from the right place. And so our challenge in all of this is to recognize that that we tend to gravitate towards people that are just like us. That's That's just what we do. And the gospel is going to allow us to reach across the barriers, whatever they may be. Maybe they're racial, maybe they're economic, maybe they're educational, maybe they're political. There are all kinds of lines that we've drawn in the sand, right? And the gospel is going to enable us to reach out across those lines and make a friend who is with somebody who is not like you. And that's the start. That's the start of everything. It's the gospel that enables Philip to go to people that he once held at arm's length and say, you know what, you need to know about the greatest gift that the world has ever been given. Can I share it with you? And that that little look at Philip in this little text tells us that everyone has a message. And hope only comes to our community when everybody lives the message. A few days ago, uh, a few of us went down to uh, 
Bentonville, Arkansas, and we listened to uh, uh, some speakers at a CIY worker conference day, and we heard a campus minister speak about how his campus ministry um, uh, several years ago was, was just going great. It was go- kind of going gangbusters, but he also knew that something was way off. And he said, we wanted the ministry on our campus to be win and build and send. In other words, we wanted to, to go win people for Christ and then build them up into Jesus and then send them out so that they could do the same thing. But he said, the more we were honest with ourselves, we realized that our ministry was really different than win, build, send. It was really find, build, seek. He said, as in what we were really doing on the campus was we were going out and we were finding people who were already Christians and we were giving them a bunch to do. We were building them so that they would hang around and they'd be teaching. He said, we knew we had to change radically if we were going to go out and actually win people for Jesus and then actually build them up in Jesus so that we could send them out. And he said, one of the changes that they made was to actually just go out. Just like the Christians here in Jerusalem had to go out. They, they said on this campus, we've got to go out. We just can't, we can't have people just come to us. We've got to go out. And he started to use the word embed. He said, we looked for ways that we could embed ourselves with the students and the faculty and the teams that we were trying to reach. Now, some of you who have lived through a war that we've, that we've gone through might remember this idea, this term embed. It, it was a, a term that journalists would use when they would go to the front lines of the war and they would live right alongside the men and the women who were fighting the war. They would embed themselves and then they would share the stories from the war front. And that kind of idea became the focus of this campus ministry, to embed themselves with the people that they were trying to reach. There was one way that presented itself right away. Um, It was for Michael. That was the, the campus minister was talking to us. It was for him to join a fraternity on campus. Now, that doesn't sound totally weird until you realize that Michael was a 35-year-old man. But he saw an opportunity to reach students. And so here's a 35-year-old man who's going through rush week, and he's getting an invitation to join a frat house, and then he's going through an eight-hour initiation ceremony with a dozen 18-year-olds. And at the age of 35, Michael became a frat brother. And he was going. Just like Philip went to Samaria, Michael went to a fraternity. A couple of years pass, and Michael and his family are on a break of some kind. Maybe it's Thanksgiving break or something like that. And while they were away, they got a call that the president of the fraternity had been in an accident. And he was on life support. And he would not make it. And they were just trying to keep him alive so he could say goodbye to people. And the hospital would only allow about three people in the room at one time. And so Michael rushed back to campus. And over the final hours of this young man's life, he took every member of that fraternity, two at a time, into this hospital room to stand by their leader's bed so that they could say goodbye. When he got home, his wife said, we're not going to see you for a few weeks. He said, what, what, what do you mean? 
He said, you need to move into the frat house because that's where you need to be. Those boys need you there, and we will see you in a few weeks. And so he moved into the frat house. He embedded himself there. Literally. Just like Philip, he went and he cooked meals because none of these guys were going to class and he talked when they wanted to talk and he was silent when they didn't want to talk and he was simply there. He embedded himself, he was serving, he was helping, he was reaching out to guys that were at a very different stage of life than his own and over those weeks, he was able to give to them the only hope that works and you know this hope now because we've said it every week so far. The only hope that works is a hope that does not die. He gave them Jesus. He gave them the living hope, Jesus. And in this little text, we get to see that because of persecution, everybody owned the mission, everybody shared the mes message. And there's, there's one more thing here in this text. It's that everybody gets a miracle. <laughs> everybody gets a miracle. I want you to look at the very end, that very last line in verse 8. Philip just goes and he preaches and he helps and he serves and he heals people as they listen to his preaching uh, because he's helped them so much. And then it says this, so there was much joy in that city. Everyone gets a miracle. Oh, some of them in the text were healed and freed from their demons, but Look what the whole city gets, joy. Have you ever heard of it said of a city, wow, that place had so much joy. Have you ever heard of a town where everybody said, oh, the people there are just so joyful, there's so much hope. Towns usually aren't described that way that I know of, and yet in the city of Samaria, there's joy and there's hope. Why? Because an ordinary guy named Philip was willing to go and embed himself in the lives of people who were different than him and pour himself out so that they would know the living hope who is Jesus. And if that sounds familiar, it should because it's what Jesus did for us. He came and embedded himself among us, living the perfect life, helping us so that we might find life. And when we pour ourselves out for others like Jesus poured himself out for us, we change the world. We can bring joy. We can bring hope to community. And we can bring hope to community. We can be a community loved by Jesus who get to see Jesus loved by our community. My question is, who wins? Who wins? God, we don't need permission today. We just need to go. Would you let us own the task that you've given us to bring hope to those who don't know hope? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen.